This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. We're going to read Proverbs chapter 19, and I'll let you know the specific verses that we're going to read. Okay. We're going to be looking at 19 and 1. We're going to be looking at 19 and 4, 6 and 7, and then 17. I'll read 19 and 1. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who walks who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Four. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. Six and seven. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Father, we thank you for your word today. And I pray as we walk through this text, Lord, that you would um, give us your heart on these matters, Lord. That as we view them and engage them and look in them, Lord, we look through your lenses and we feel the weight of your heart and how we as a church live in times like now in regard to these things. We give you all the honor and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. So all the, all the topics that we, we picked for this sermon series were, were, were cultural topics where there is a need for wisdom and how you walk through those things, but there is a discrepancy in what real wisdom looks like. So we was very intentional in choosing those topics. Now, you've just heard me read that, so you already hear where this is going. So what I want to do is set this up by, I want to share this quote. I'm not going to dive into the quote just yet. I'm going to come back to the quote, but I want to start off by sharing this quote, and then I'm going to make some points. Now, this quote is an African proverb. No one knows who the author is, but in different... um, Areas and countries in Africa, the proverb is, is expressed in different ways. So here's the, here's the quote. Until lions have their own historians, the tales of the hunt shall always glorify the hunter. Until lions have their own historians, the tales of the hunt shall always glorify the hunter. Another rendition of it says, Until the animals get their own storyteller, the hunter remains the hero of all the tales. We're going to look at that in a few. Who inside here was, remember when we went through um, our series in the book of Judges? 
Who's out here remember that? And I just want to know who, who if, if I talk about it, who it connects with. All right, there's a few of you. Okay. Well, a while back, we went through a series in the book of Judges. And one of the things that's beautiful about going back to, to Old Testament books is that you, you get to see this storyline. You get to see this timeline. And you, you're able to see the type of things that happened in the Old Testament that gave context to the things that happened in the New Testament. And then you look at those things in the New Testament and you see the context to give to us right now as the, the, the overflow of the New Testament or the ongoing of the New Testament. So in the book of Judges, when we was going through that book, one of the things you constantly seen was the Lord was always cautioning Israel to beware of the idols of the surrounding culture. He was telling them that over and over again, beware of the idols of the surrounding culture. And, these, and it, was, it was a heavy deal as we were walking through the book of, of, of Judges. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, right? It was supposed to be a light. They had all these nations around them, all these different cultures around them, but they were supposed to be a light to those nations, a light to those cultures by, by displaying a culture that emanated from the kingdom of God and didn't worship the idols of the surrounding culture. They were supposed to attract the nations to them by displaying something better. The nations were supposed to be able to look and say, man, they seem to have real peace and real joy and really be enjoying themselves. And things look real rich and they don't have to, 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 to submit to the idols that we submit to. And they're having these things way better than we do. And it was supposed to attract them to something that was better. And we walked through that text and we walked through the book. The thing is, when we closed out that series, Israel wasn't offering something better. As a matter of fact, not only had the idols of the surrounding cultures gotten interwoven into their everyday life, they became some of the worst idolaters. That's how we end up closing that thing out. Why is that important to this text? Reason is, the same way Israel was called to be a light to the nations in the Old Testament. The church was called to be a light to the nations in the New Testament, leading into today with us as a part of that New Testament. And God is still sounding the alarm saying, beware of the idols of culture. Still, he hadn't stopped, but yet still calls us into it. He calls us to be a light to the nations and, and, and places us amidst the other nations, but cautions us to, to not adopt their idols. 
in, in John 17, verses 14 to 19, Jesus, he's, he's praying to the Father. And while he's praying to the Father, he talks about how he was, he was sending the church, he was sending his disciples, he was sending his people. He talks to the Father, he's praying, and, and he's talking about how he was, he, he was sending them into the world while yet he was holding fast to the reality that they were not of the world. He made the comparison to himself how, how, how the Father has sent him into the world and he was not of the world and he was in turn sending them, but they were not of the world. I want us to understand what he means when he says the world. Yeah, the world can mean the planet, but it means something else there. When he says the world, he's talking about the, the systems of culture that are shaped by the idols of culture to create and support a perpetual, systematic culture of idol worship. This is what he means by world, that machine, that, that matrix that, that, that continues to pump out idols and create an atmosphere where the idols will continue to be worshipped and people will never know it because they've grown up inside of it. It seems like just everyday life. Since the world, he's talking about systems that are created to serve the idols of culture. Now, when you start thinking about the idols of culture, see, Jesus, he, he definitely confronted the idols of culture. But when he was talking to his disciples, it wasn't that he went in and said, let me name all the idols for you. Because he could be at that all day long because there are so many, so many different idols, so many different variations of idols. He didn't go in and say, let me try to name every single one so you can get it. But instead what he did, he went in and he said, let me show you my kingdom. Let me give you my word. Now, anything that doesn't sync up with the heart of the gospel, anything that doesn't sync up with the heart of my kingdom stems from the system of cultural idols that we identify as the world. He gave them a grid to, to, to mesh everything through. The ethics of the kingdom of God becomes the, the strain of that, that, that you would sift all systems through to identify if this system is one that reflects the kingdom of God or exposed an idol of culture. This is the grid that he gives to all of us. And he says, use this, use this. Don't give in to the idols of culture. And they can be really, really tricky. Use this grip. Have my heart. Sift it through the kingdom. First Corinthians. Paul confronts the Corinthian church, right? They had been, they had become divisions inside of the church. 
And they started having these factions inside of the church. And so when Paul goes to them and he confronts them, what he does is he, he reminds them of their calling. Like, remember when, when you was first called, when the Spirit of God moved inside you, your eyes lit up and you realized who you are? Remember that time? Let me take it back some. He was talking to them and, and, and he reminded them of, of, of the affections of the heart of God. This is what God cared about during those times. I just need you to go back some. He reminds them of the things that God chooses. And he does it to expose how the things that they were choosing weren't in step with the heart of God. And how they had actually started to co-op with the idols of culture and had led to division inside of the church. Now, I want to read the text. I want to be very, very intentional with it because it really speaks to the heart of this message today. So 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. Let me walk through it slowly real quick. He says, for consider your calling. All right? Consider. Go back. Remember when God opened your eyes to the, to the truth. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were wise according to the system of idolatry. According to the system of idolatry, not many of you would have been considered wise. Remember that. Not saying that you aren't wise. The system wouldn't have called you wise. He's making these value points. Remember this thing. But in the good to note that he says, not many. That means some people were, but not many. Not many of you were powerful according to the system of idols, according to the world. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. I mean, like, y'all didn't have some type of name. You guys was nobodies. Not many of you came from some type of bloodline of people that was like, oh, the... And he continues and he talks about how God chooses things, right? Now, this is important here as we understand this. 27 to 29, he says, But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. The thing that this world considered foolish, considered rubbish, considered God said, I want that right there. I'm going to choose that right there to confront the thing that the world would say was wise. Whether it's because, man, you got a PhD and you got this and you got that. And then God was like, I'm going to choose that over there. To confront the values of this world. It goes on, he says, God chose what is weak in the world. Remember, he keeps saying the world. He keeps reminding them of the system of idolatry that has labored it weak. God chose what is weak in this world to shame what this world identifies as strong. 
28, God chose what was low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Like God chose those ones that were so low, so despised, that they was considered nothing. To confront the ones that the world lifted up as something. Example, God would choose Moses that came from a group of Hebrews that was considered so low, they was only worth being a disposable workforce to challenge the house of Pharaoh. He confronts how they at the church had started to co-opt with worldly systems that had a standard of value that was not in step with the value system of the kingdom of God. This is important to understand as we walk this thing out. Some of those things that the, the, the world was valuing as, 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 as strong and as powerful, as, like this means something. When he said worldly wisdom, he's talking about like education or, man, you make sense according to worldly standards and stuff. Or, or power, like, like to be in positions of, 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 of power. Positions of, of authority, positions of, of, of power. Like everybody want to be powerful. Everybody want, man, when I talk, people listen. Or even strong, like, when you say strong, like, people use the term, like, money is power, bro. So everybody want that power because they want that money. They want to make that money, rack that money up, because if they got that money, they've gotten that power, but they, they've co-opted with the idols of this world and their definitions of power. Those are these idols right here. And he says, God, God, he chose the ones that had no worldly wisdom. The stuff that you would do, the world thinks is stupid. It doesn't make sense. We have other methods. You're not that bright. Show me your PhDs and show me your this and show me your that. Oh, you don't have none? You can't even conversate with me. Those are the ones he chose. He chose the one that the world was like, man, you too weak. You're weak. According to our standards, you need to be this. He chose the nobodies, the least of these. I want to tell you, we start walking down this pathway of idolatry, money, power, position, and the benefits afforded by these things are huge cultural idols with huge, deep hooks in the church. There are churches that plan everything they do around these idols and think that it's normal, think that it makes sense, think that it's okay. But you look at this text today, 
The poor have none of these. The poor are part of a group of people that are considered weak and irrelevant. So they're cast out. So they're marginalized. So they're oppressed. So they're overlooked. Title today's sermon is Love for the Poor in a World of Plenty. It's a big deal. This is a big deal to us even here and how we do ministry here. Because I, I can literally hear and see like the same way God led Paul to remind the church of God's heart in this matter back then. God continues to remind his church of his heart in that matter today. That hasn't stopped. We are fighting against idols. We're fighting that the church's value system is not adopted from the idols of this culture. We're fighting that, that, that we as the church will be able to display a value system to the surrounding cultures that reflect the kingdom of God that says Jesus is Lord and he is in control and he is good and satisfying. We want to reflect the heart of our king. The reality is sometimes we have no idea how steeped we are in the idols of culture. Back to that quote earlier. Until the lions have their own historians, tales of the hunt shall always glorify the hunter. Until the animals get their own storyteller, the hunter remains the hero of all tales. What it's saying is that the person in the position of power dictates the story. The idols of culture dictates the story and tell us this is what's true. The person in the position of power tells history the way that he wants it to read. The champions of the idols of culture tell the story, always making themselves the hero. Systems on top of systems. History books that we read in school was written from the perspective of the idols of culture and formulates themselves to help get you in tune with serving those idols. Perspective is everything, right? Like, imagine if the history books that we were forced to study in school and was going to be graded on, imagine if those history books, imagine if, if, if those social study books was written from the perspective of the Indian. How much different would we view things? Imagine if the ones that we was going to be graded on was written from the perspective of the slave. How much different would things be? 
Imagine if the books that we study was written from the perspective of the disenfranchised, the perspective of the, the, the broken. And he's like, study these so you can understand this. Books like that are golden. They're golden because they give rich perspective, but they're few. But here's the deal here. The Bible is one of those books. Many people don't realize that. The Bible is the book that's written from the perspective of the oppressed. It's written from the perspective of the Hebrew that's in captivity and trying to get out of Egypt. It's written from the perspective of, the, of, of Israel that's going from place to place and, 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 and struggling to find their identity. But they're oppressed here, oppressed there. And then when they're in power, they handle things wrong. And then they're oppressed here again. Like, the Bible is written from that perspective. A lot of times people don't realize that, though. They never stop to think about the vantage point of the perspective, the vantage point of the person that's writing it. Like, it speaks so much more. And when you're reading it, you can read this really, really weird because if, if you're in that position of, 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 of power, you're in that position of when it says not many, and you're in that few, and then you read this text, and you read the Bible, but you read yourself as the people being rescued. You read yourself from that context, you'll miss how you should be reading it and how it should be humbling your heart, because many of us should be reading that text and turn around and be like, man... I'm part of Pharaoh's squad. What does it look like to humble myself and submit to this thing right here? Everybody want to read themselves as the heroes. But the reality of it, more of us are the villains than we think. And it's beautiful because God comes after the villains and says, submit yourself to the cross the same way as them. But when you look at yourself as the, the person that's being rescued or, or the victor, you miss the true opportunity for genuine brokenness and humility, submitting to the weight and glory of a God that was still redeemed and yet used for his works. Like, imagine if the Bible was written from the perspective of the Egyptians or written from the perspective of the Roman government. It would read so differently. Perspective is everything. So I say all that to set up how we look at this text because I want us to understand the heart of God as he, he walks us through these things and he calls us to, to not co-op with the idols of culture because they are forming how we look at these things way more than we realize. So in 19 and 1, It says, better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who was crooked in his speech and is a fool. When you read that, he's not comparing two poor people to one another. 
He's confronting an idol. He's talking to his son. He's confronting an idol. He says, listen, a poor person who walks in integrity is better than a person that's not poor but is crooked in his speech, and he is a fool. He is so given to, to folly. Like, there are people out here that we know are fools. But because they have power and position and they have finances and they have all these type of things, no one will say that they are fools. But he's saying, and you got to understand, Solomon is saying this as one of wealth. He's not fighting for something there. He's trying to give wisdom from his own experience. Like, listen, I was that fool. Remember, a poor person that walks right in his integrity is way more preferred than I would be. Think about verses 4, 6, and 7. It says, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. Six, many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. Seven, all a poor man's brother hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? A lot of times, the biggest difference between a poor person and a rich person or a person that's wealthy and a person that isn't as well off, a lot of times the biggest difference isn't even the money. It's the relationships. It's the connections. It's the networks. A lot of times those are the biggest things. And the reason why it pushes in this stuff, and he, and he says, man, He's losing his friends and, and his family doesn't want him to connect with them because he cannot effectively contribute to the systems of the idols. I don't get nothing from this relationship. I don't benefit from this relationship. And, and having this relationship doesn't move me closer to, to, to being in sync with the idols of culture. So I just look at him as a leech and I just look at him like, how many of us have genuine, deep relationships that we get nothing out of the relationship other than just the friendship. But that person being in a relationship with me gets a ton other than the friendship. Most of us don't have a lot of those kind of relationships. Because we're set up to just have relationships that's going to benefit me in some other way. When it says in Acts, and it says how the church, and they came together, and they had all things in common, it doesn't mean that, that, that they had all the same things. It means that they had access to the same networks. And all was given into that network. Now that leveled the playing field. And they ended up having all things in common because they shared with one another in that regards. We talk about having having relationship and ministry and serving the, the poor and stuff. And, and we're not talking about this 
paternalistic thing where it's like, you know, it's like my kids. My, we're not talking about that. We're talking about where you see deep value in the relationship as, as itself when you two are on equal planes. I want to receive from you just as much as I want you to receive from me. You know God through lenses that I don't know him through. You are a valuable part that I need. And I don't want you to feel that since you don't view yourself as needed, I don't contribute. It's only a one-way relationship. Nobody needs me. I just need everybody else. That's why we continue to shape and mold how we, we, we run our ministries here. We want that to be the heart of it. We want relationship to be the heart of it. We can do other things where like, we want true relationship and, and networks and family and building to be all, all part of that. Here's the gospel. 17, he says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deeds. It's interesting in this phrase like that because it says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. They and all that dwells inside of it. But he said, but if you live this kind of life where you're generous to the poor, look at it as you serving me. He's putting this value on it that says look at it as like you're serving me. I think about Matthew 25, and he's talking about the people that inherit the kingdom of God and the people that don't inherit the kingdom of God. And as an example, when he's talking about it, he says, man, when I didn't have no food, you fed me. Um, when I didn't have no clothes, you clothed me. When I didn't have this, when I didn't have that, you, you took care of me. And it's based off of if you took care of me or if you didn't take care of me, if you was there for me or if you wasn't there for me. And that was the context that said whether or not you was inheriting the kingdom of God. And he said, when did we do these things? And he says, when you did it or didn't do it to the least of these, you did it or didn't do it to me. And he puts this value on it. That's right where his heart is at. Like you doing this is fellowshipping with me. Think about how Jesus would just, man, just, just in how he did things would confront the idols of culture. The people that was considered weak, just in how he did things, he was, he was just there for them. And he, he made these statements of, of their value. I, I think about the story with the woman with the alabaster box and she busts in. In a setting that, that women shouldn't have been in because they was viewed as, as weak. And even there, the idols of culture was huge. And Peter is like, man, you should send her away. And he's talking to Peter, and they're going back and forth. He's telling her how you should send her away, and he's talking to Peter. And eventually, while he's talking to Peter, he turns his back on Peter. 
He keeps talking to Peter, but looks at the woman. He's just talking to Peter, but he's just looking at the woman and saying, Peter, you're missing it. And he's placing this value, that statement that while he's talking to him, like at this moment right now, you're not even worth me looking at you in the eye. I'm going to turn my gaze to where the real value is at in this moment right here. This is what I'm hoping that we get from this text today, that we get the heart and value of God. This means much to us. This is why we are here, right here in this location where God will call us to serve right here. And where we have a, a, a flow of people that we have this opportunity to put Christ-like value on because the Lord said that's what it does. Well, we got to steward that and think about what this having deeper relationship looks like, what this fighting the idols of culture looks like. That's the vision that we have. As I close out and I set us up for communion and prayer, I want to Look at these three different ways that people respond to the idols of culture. And I want us to think about it. And I want us to pray. One way that people respond to the idols of culture is complete rejection. I just want to stay far away from it. I'm not going to have nothing at all to do with it. I don't, nothing that even smells like it, even look like it. I'm going to live um, in a rock somewhere, under a rock somewhere. I just want to just disassociate from anything that even seems like it, complete rejection. But what this does, it, it leads to you being irrelevant. You, you can no longer effectively speak into culture because you're so... Separated from it, that you no longer even have a voice into it. That's one way that people do. So a lot of people get that. So what they do is they affirm the idols of culture. They don't want to rock the boats too much. So, so they just try to affirm the idols of culture and it leads into this, this syncretistic kind of living where you have the gospel right here and the idols right there. And I sort of try to justify the two and mesh them together. And, and, and that's not it. But when Jesus was talking to his father, he says, they're in it, but not of it. That's the direction. That's the direction, being in it, but not of it, because it produces a, 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 a faith-building tension. Well, I'm in it, and it's all around me, but I'm not a byproduct of it. And I can identify it. And I can look at these things through the, the lenses of the gospel and strain them through the truths of the gospel and put the value where value needs to be put. And the idols of culture are not dictating my value system. The kingdom of God is. 
This is what we're called into. Today, as we take communion today, remember, Jesus identified himself with the least of these. As we're taking communion, the bread represents his body broken for you, broken for us, broken for them. The juice represents blood that flows. And we eat and we sup because this is a table that is spread by God himself. And he says, as you eat with this, you are on mission with me and you value the things that I value. So I ask you to pray and ask God to expose the idols of your heart and show you how you've co-opted with the idols of culture, how you in, in, in your own way have taken things that are good in and of themselves and made them idols and started to worship them and started to think that they are the answer. That's where real power is at, when real power is in him. So the tables are open. Let's pray, break bread together, and then let's worship our great, great king together. The tables are open. Let's break bread. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.